The last investigator I met with was Dr. Jorge Cortez, and to begin, we discussed Abstract 152. So this first abstract is what's called the final analysis of the randomized phase 3 study of the satinib versus simatinib as frontline therapy for patients with CML. So this is the study that essentially established the satinib as one of the standard treatments for CML. We now have it approved and we've been using it for some years. The importance of this report is that it gives us the five-year follow-up on the data. And the study was planned for five years, so that's why it is called the final results of this analysis. So just a reminder, this was a randomized study of patients with newly diagnosed chronic phase CML, and they were randomized to receive either dasatinib 100 milligrams daily or imatinib 400 milligrams daily. There were about 260 patients on each arm. The primary endpoint had been the rate of confirmed complete cytogenetic response by 12 months, so that's already been published and presented, and as we all know, it was significantly better for the patients treated with asatinib, therefore the approval of this drug. What's here new is that a little over 60% of patients in both treatment arms continue on study after five years of follow-up, a minimum follow-up of five years. And the results essentially can be summarized by saying that it continues showing the superiority of dasatinib over imatinib in most of the response measurements. So, for example, the rate of confirmed complete cell genetic response by five years, 83% versus 78%. Particularly the molecular responses, for example, major molecular response is 76% versus 64%. And the difference in molecular response, importantly, is maintained throughout the five years, meaning the gap is not closing up. It remains favorable to the satinib. There's also been a lower rate of transformation to accelerated and blast phase with the satinib compared to imatinib, which is also very important because those patients who transform are very difficult to treat, and unfortunately, many of those end up dying. What we're not seeing yet is a difference in progression-free survival or in overall survival. And I just want to clarify that what's called in this study progression-free survival is what most other studies call event-free survival. So just so that when we review different studies, we don't get a misunderstanding on these terms. So again, there's been no difference in these outcomes. One outcome that is very important recently is their response at three months, having less than 10% transcripts at three months. And that is also significantly better with the satinib. And we know that that correlates with long-term outcomes. So one could argue why, if everything is so positive with the satinib, we're not seeing a progression-free survival or an overall survival. And I think the reason for that is because we know that patients with imatinib can be salvaged. And I think that with these follow-up and with these number of patients, it is not expected that we would see that benefit. I do think that with longer follow-up, we will see little by little a trend for a separation of the curves in favor of the, the satinib arm, but it's just not possible with these still relatively short follow-up, although five years is, of course, a good follow-up. In terms of safety, we continue seeing that the known adverse events for the different drugs, the main one that is more common with the satinib compared to imatinib is pleural effusions, as we know. And the pleural effusions can occur late for the first time. So we still see an occasional patient having a first instance of pleural effusion with the satinib even this late. But the great majority of these pleural effusions are grade one or grade two, and they're manageable. So it is very rare that patients have to discontinue the satinib because of pleural effusion, only 6% overall of the patients. What's the cumulative incidence of the pleural effusions now at this point? 
The cumulative incidence is 29% in these reports. So it's 25 to 30%. Again, most of these patients were able to continue treatment with proper management. A few, I mentioned 6%, had to discontinue treatment. So I think this means that we need to monitor the patients closely. And when there's pleural effusions, do treatment interruptions, those adjustments, we can manage. We use diuretics, we use corticosteroids. We're working what's the adequate management for the pleural effusion because we need to understand better the mechanisms, et cetera. But these are some of the interventions that we use to manage these patients. Just from a clinical perspective, you talk about management of these patients, and obviously you have the issue of symptomatic management, but in terms of CML management, how do you decide between continuing treatment and switching, for example, to nilotinib? Well, you know, one thing that's interesting is that although we don't understand very well the mechanism of the pleural effusions, there's some suggestion that it has to do with the increased NK cells or some possibly immune mechanism, etc. There is a trend for a better response among the patients who have these pleural effusions and that have these NK cells. So that brings the question as to whether you should just change immediately when you see a pleural effusion. And my approach is usually not to change immediately. I do the medical management, again, because fortunately, most of these pleural effusions are grade one or grade two anyway. So I try to manage the patients, again, doing brief treatment interruptions, manage with corticosteroids, diuretics, reintroduce at a lower dose, and that tends to be enough. Of course, if you're having problems with a patient who's not responding, well, then you have two reasons why you want to change. But if they are responding well, you need to do these interventions, and the great majority of patients will be able to resume therapy at lower doses and tolerate it well. But that's interesting. I don't believe I've heard that before. You're saying that maybe the presence of pleural effusions might be correlated with better CML outcome? Yeah, there's some correlation with the presence of these NK cells, and it correlates with both a higher probability of having pleural effusions and a trend for a better response rate. So this is an interesting correlation that we don't understand well, but it's been seen, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a subsequent abstract as well. So I'm trying to remember, is it this year that imatinib's coming off patent? That's what we expect, yes. So how did these data that were presented at ASH, as well as really all the other data that you referred to before, as well as the data on nilotinib, address the issue of the sort of lower risk patient? I've heard people say that maybe when imatinib goes off patent, if the price goes down, that that would be an option in patients who are at lower risk. What do we know about that, and how do these data sets address that question? That's a very important question and one that we're going to have to investigate a little bit further. One thing we know from both the dasatinib and the nilotinib studies is that all the risk subgroups, either by SoCal or by Hasford, they all experience benefits in terms of the response with the newer drugs, dasatinib or nilotinib. So there is an incremental benefit in terms of, for example, major molecular response or the deeper molecular responses when you use the new agents. The benefit is greater in the high-risk patients, but even the low-risk patients have that benefit. So I think that that's perhaps not the proper way to select the patients because, you know, why not pursue a higher rate even in the low-risk patients, even though more of them do well with imatinib. So we're going to need to learn what's the best strategy, especially considering the costs of these drugs. And, you know, there is the possibility to consider, for example, should we start with the new drugs, And once the patients get into a deep molecular response because they get their 
faster with these drugs, can you then switch them to, for example, a generic imatinib and do a maintenance with those drugs? Will that be sufficient to keep them there? Or should you just start everybody with imatinib and change only the patients who are falling behind? I personally don't like the strategy of act when you fall behind because, you know, this is cancer. We shouldn't forget that. And when you fall behind, there's always a possibility that you will not be able to catch up, at least in some patients. But that needs to be addressed. And I think that some of these studies will have to come up in the near future to address what's the proper place of imatinib and how do we better position all our tools And nowadays, we have to be very mindful of the economies of these drugs and the generics start addressing these issues. But specifically in sort of the lower risk patient, do you think, I mean, I've heard people say that they think it's an equivalent option that they would take if it was a big price differential. Do you agree with that? No, I don't agree. I think we do see a higher rate of major molecular response and deeper molecular responses with the new drugs. Now, that doesn't translate in a benefit in survival, so that is a valid argument. But there is a benefit in terms of getting to the deeper molecular responses. And for example, we know that you get more, these deeper molecular responses, and we're going to talk a little bit about these later, are when you can start thinking about treatment discontinuation. So if that is one of the goals of therapy, well, you get more of those with the newer drugs. So let's go through a few more of these abstracts. I've always been fascinated by the panatinib story. And at ASH, we saw with Abstract 519, the Phase 3 EPIC trial. Yeah, this is an important study. It was a randomized study of ponatinib compared to imatinib as initial therapy. Essentially the same design as we just discussed with the other studies with asatinib, but this one using ponatinib. This was with the principle that being a very potent drug that covers all the mutations, that in a laboratory it seems to even prevent the emergence of resistant clones, whether you could get even better outcome and prevent the emergence of mutations. Now, this was a randomized study It was planned for a little over 500 patients. Unfortunately, as the data started emerging from ponatinib with the risk of arterial thrombotic events, etc., this study had to be terminated with only 300 patients, 307 patients. So what we have is an incomplete study and with a relatively short follow-up. So we cannot talk about the long-term outcomes. Very few patients made it to 12 months, which was the primary endpoint. But we do know that, for example, at three months, more than 90% of patients, 94% of patients, had less than 10% transcripts with the ponatinib arm, whereas with imatinib, we only get to these deep responses in about 60% of the patients, 65% of the patients. So clearly showing that it is very effective, these rate 94% seems to be higher than what we get with the satinib or nilotinib which has been reported at around 80 to 85%. So it seems to push it up even higher. And interestingly enough, there was another study from our institution, which was a single arm frontline ponatinib study, which was also terminated because of the same issue of the concerns with safety. But it also reported the exact same rate of three-month response, less than 10%, 94%. So it does look like ponatinib is very effective. Again, the main problem with ponatinib here is the arterial thrombotic events. And in this study, the EPIC study, we did see those events happening. There was a significant number of patients that developed these kind of events. The rate of these events were 7% with ponatinib and 2% 
with imatinib had these arteriothrombotic events, so a tripling, and this is with a short exposure. Again, this study was terminated early with a median follow-up of 5%. So in a patient population that has other treatment options and knowing that with time, these incidences increased in the other studies with ponatinib in previously treated patients, that was the consideration that made the termination of this study mandated. So, you know, panatinib is not something we use nowadays as frontline therapy. We still use it for salvage therapy in the right patients that have T359 that have failed the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It's still a useful drug, but we need to be very mindful of the cardiovascular arteriothrombotic events in these patients. So it seems like every year now at ASH, we see more data on the issue of discontinuation of a TKI and CML. And this year, there are a couple of big papers, number 811, a French study, and abstract 151, the Euro ski trial. So just as a background, this group, the French, have pioneered the treatment discontinuation. And the first study that they reported was the study that was called the STEAM, Stop Imatinib. And they had reported that among patients that have had a sustained complete molecular response for at least two years, when they discontinue therapy, about 40% of patients maintain their complete molecular response, with most of the relapses happening in the first six months. That study was done with imatinib. So this first abstract that we're talking about, 811, they are doing essentially the same thing, but this time discontinuing the satinib or nilotinib, whether they took these drugs as first line or after imatinib failure. There are a few differences compared to the first study that they published with imatinib. The first one is that the patients had to maintain a molecular response for at least two years, but this time they're looking for what's called a MR4.5, not the complete molecular response. So this is 4.5 logarithm decrease in transcripts. So in terms of absolute values, in the international scale, this means that the patients are equal or less than 0.0032, not necessarily undetectable. The second difference that's important is that here they considered a relapse only if the patient lost a major molecular response. So if the patient became positive again, if it was negative and became positive but maintained a major molecular response, that's not considered a relapse here only if they go above the 0.1 level or the three log reduction level. So those are two important differences. So what they are showing here is that about 60% of patients can maintain free of relapse by 12 months and 57 by 24 months. So these numbers sound higher. Remember I talked about the imatinib, it was 40%. But keep in mind, we changed the definition of relapse because we're letting them go higher before we call them a relapse. That explains perhaps a good part of these difference. Instead of being 40%, it's 60%. But I think a lot of that is just our change in the definition. Still, it shows that some patients can maintain a durable, good remission, if not complete, at least a major molecular remission. They looked at the factors that could predict for being able to maintain the remission. And the one that they identified as most predictive is whether the patients received asatinib or nilotinib because of intolerance to imatinib or frontline, they did better than if they 
were receiving dasatinib or nilotinib because they had resistance or suboptimal response to imatinib. So a patient who has had failure, true failure, resistance to a prior drug is less likely to maintain a good response after treatment discontinuation. So that's an important thing to keep in mind that perhaps those patients are not the optimal candidates for treatment discontinuation, at least with what we know today. Now, let me talk about the other study. The other study, which is abstract 151, is what's called the Euroski study. And in this study, they are focusing specifically on patients who are receiving treatment as frontline therapy with a TKI. The prior studies had included patients that had received prior interferon and prior other drugs. Here, they're all receiving it as frontline, or there is a small cohort of patients who could have switched because of intolerance to a prior TKI, but nobody who had resistance to a prior TKI. So this is a study that is accruing patients from all over Europe, and they've enrolled almost 500 patients on this study. And again, here, the criteria to consider going into this study changes a little bit. The patients were required to have a molecular response MR4. So this is even more disease detectable. So remember, we talked the first study was undetectable MR5, 5 log reduction. The one we just discussed was MR4.5, 4.5 logs. Here, they only required 4 logs. And they only required it to be sustained for at least one year, not two years like the previous ones. So they're getting a little bit more bold in terms of getting patients that are not as deep the response and not as durable the response by the time they stop the treatment. Here again, a relapse is defined as the loss of a major molecular response. So what they show in this analysis is that 61% of the patients maintained the remission. For the first six months, the follow-up is still short on this study, but 61% of the patients have not relapsed in the first six months. And six months is important because, again, it's when the majority of the relapses occur. They looked at what features may predict for a more durable response and the duration of treatment. Patients who have received treatment for more than eight years are less likely to receive. And also that patients that have had a deeper molecular response for at least five years are less likely to relapse. So I think in summary, what these two studies show and as continuation of their prior data is that some patients can stop the treatment and maintain some level of response. Now we need to be very cautious before we start applying these to all our patients. Number one, we need to know very well what kind of response the patients are having. We need to also understand that there has to be a very strong commitment to monitoring the patients very closely after they discontinue treatment because in this series they have not reported any loss of hematologic responses or transformations, but if we don't act immediately and a patient relapses and we don't recognize that because we're not monitoring, it is likely that the disease will come back in a more aggressive form. So this is something that's very important to recognize that it should be done on a clinical trial with very, very close monitoring. So I've asked you this before. I'm curious where you stand today. And the question is, in what clinical situations, if any, will you discuss with and manage a patient through an attempt at discontinuation? In the past, one of the things you've talked about is women who want to have a child. Any other situations? 
Well, you know, what I do is any of my patients that meets these criteria, that uh, have had at least two years of uh, sustained, and I still go with a complete molecular response. I feel uncomfortable with a patient that has detectable disease, have them without treatment. The follow-up that we have here is very short. Let's not forget that with transplant, which is clearly curative modality of treatment in CML, we see relapses 15, 20 years after transplant. So I don't think we've seen the whole story here. But anyway, any patient that has had a complete molecular response sustained for at least two years in a laboratory that I know that is very reliable, I discuss this information. I think the patients need to know what we know about this and present this information. Not everybody wants to discontinue therapy. Actually, in my experience, a small minority of patients want to discontinue. Many times they want to discontinue because they're having more side effects or problems with access to the drug. Many patients don't want to discontinue because they are afraid. They say, you know, I'm doing well, I'm just taking a pill, but I have no problems. Why should I discontinue? And to be honest, that's what I would do. I don't want to discontinue therapy, but every patient is different. So I think you need to address this with your patient. And then when you discontinue treatment, you need to follow the patients with a PCR every month for at least the first six months. What I do then is every two months for another six months, and then every three months. So if the treatment is stopped, actually the monitoring frequency should increase, and you need to be confident that both the patient and the physician are going to be following very closely so that if you detect a relapse, you act immediately. So let's move on and talk a little bit about myelofibrosis, beginning with abstract 633 looking at the survival of allogeneic stem cell transplant versus conventional therapies based on DIPSS stratification? Yeah, this is an important study because we always have that question, a patient that has a potential for receiving a transplant, you know, when should we transplant? You know, is there a benefit of doing it early or later or whatever? So what they did here is they looked at the registry patients that were treated with transplant and then patients that were treated with just standard of care. They did an analysis by the IPSS, so this is the standard score that we use for patients with malofibrosis that involves the age and the white cell count, etc. They use the dynamic one, and they looked at by the different stages of the myelofibrosis, low, intermediate one, intermediate two, and high-risk patients. They looked at the survival of patients according to whether they were transplanted or they were treated with the non-transplant modalities. Now, keep in mind that probably not many of these patients had received bruxolitinib. That's not very clear from the abstract, but because it's historical, it's likely that most of these patients did not receive it, certainly not early on during their treatment. So what the results have shown is that in the earlier stages, in the patients with the lower risks, the low risk and the intermediate one, the survival was actually better for the patients who did not receive a transplant. So for example, if we look at the low-risk DIPSS patients, the survival with transplant, they present the one-year, the five-year, and the 10-year survival. So in the low-risk with transplant, it's 100% at one year, 69 and 60%. It sounds pretty good. But with the non-transplant, it's 98, 95, and 92. And importantly, you see that the difference is later on it's not because of early mortality with the transplant because the one-year survival is very similar. It's later on that you start seeing that the patients that did not receive a transplant do better. 
And the same can be said for the intermediate one. Again, better for the non-transplanted patients with a particular benefit in the later years. So at 10 years, for example, it's 41% with transplant, 63% with non-transplant. But when you start going to the more advanced patients, the intermediate two and the high-risk patients, then things turn around. Obviously, the outcome with transplant is not as good when you transplant a patient that is more advanced. So their 10-year survival is going to be only 32%, but that is significantly better than the 11% for the patients that do not receive a transplant. Same thing with the high-risk patients, 27% at 10 years with transplant, only 1% without transplant. So what this says is that the patients with more advanced disease, and by the way, the study particularly focuses on the patients that are younger than 65. So, you know, we're talking about the patients who are eligible for transplant for the most part. But it shows that the patients with the more advanced disease, with the high risk, certainly, and perhaps the intermediate too, if they are good candidates for transplant, we should consider that option, and we need to look at these in these patients. What's the explanation for why the lower-risk patients did worse with the transplant? Was that related to complications? Yeah, I think that that's because of the complications that come with a transplant. You know, you have infections and second cancers and graft versus host disease, etc., and that little by little starts impacting their survival. And the patients that have low risk disease in myelofibrosis, they, you know, they have very little issues going on. How about abstract 1851 addressing something we heard a lot of questions about using roxolitinib prior to allogeneic stem cell transplant? Yeah, this is a small study. It's just 10 patients, but it tries to address that important question. We always wonder whether the use of a new drug, when you use it before transplant, whether it may have some unexpected adverse consequences in the transplant. So again, this is only 10 patients, but these patients had received ruxolitinib prior to the transplant. And some of them had primary myelofibrosis. Some of them had myelofibrosis evolving from polycythemia vera or essential thrombocytemia. And essentially what they show is that all of these patients are alive and that the incidence of complications, GVHD, et cetera, is really minimal. And there perhaps actually was benefit from the ruxolitinib because, for example, many of the patients that had splenomegaly, the spleen size improved significantly. Five out of nine patients, they had a good benefit in terms of the splenomegaly. So I think this, although it's a small cohort, it starts alleviating that potential concern. And it tells you that, yeah, a patient that is going to get a transplant, ruxolitinib, if anything, can help because if they improve their splenomegaly, you know, that's a positive issue. I remember before ruxolitinib, we used to take these patients first to splenectomy before we would get them to transplant. But, you know, these big spleens are very difficult to take out. There's have a lot of complications. So, you know, with these data and with the known data with ruxolitinib, you would give ruxolitinib to a patient if you want to transplant them, but they have a big spleen. You know, giving them ruxolitinib, if anything, can help the patients feel better and shrink the spleen. I'm not clear quite in terms of how much of a problem it is to have splenomegaly going into transplant. If you have a patient who doesn't have splenic reduction with ruxolitinib, do you still ever consider surgery? It depends on the spleen size. I mean, if it's just a mild splenomegaly, you don't need to do much about that. The problem is the patients with a very enlarged spleen that is causing symptoms and of course, those are the splenectomies that have the most morbidity because of the size itself of the spleen. So that is when you would want to use ruxolitinib to shrink it down as much as possible and avoid that risky surgery.
How about 1857, looking at the real-world assessment of clinical outcomes in lower-risk myofibrosis patients treated with ruxolitinib? Yeah, this is an interesting study because it addresses two important questions. One is there's always the question about whether a clinical trial really reflects what you would expect in general practice. There's a lot of features that change when you take these to a broader audience you know, from the selection of patients and the expertise of managing the drug and many other things. And two, the other important aspect of this disease is the fact that it focuses on the lower risk patients with myelofibrosis, whereas a lot of the experience has been generated with the higher risk patients, at least the intermediate one to high. Here we even have some patients with a low risk disease. They focus on patients with a IPSS score of zero or one only. But they gave them ruxolitinib. They treated them with ruxolitinib because they had symptoms, so they had some splenomegaly, etc. And what they found was very good results. You know, essentially what we know that ruxolitinib can do, a significant reduction in the spleen size. They kind of grouped their patients by splenomegaly into mild splenomegaly, that it was less than 10 centimeters, moderate if it was 10 to 20, or severe if it was more than 20 centimeters. And the percentage of patients that were in the moderate to severe went down significantly from 64% at baseline to 16% with ruxolitinib. And that applies to both the low risk and the intermediate one. And they also looked at the symptoms. You know, there's this general symptom score that's been used extensively in myelofibrosis, very well validated and clearly shows how the patients are doing. And they showed the benefit in many of these symptoms. For example, fatigue decreased from 90% at baseline to 37% with ruxolitinib. So clearly the patients benefit from the use of ruxolitinib in general practice in the community. And even these patients that have indications for treatment in the sense of symptoms or splenomegaly, but they may even when they have a lower risk disease. How often do you see patients with low-risk disease who have symptoms, and do you use ruxolitinib in that situation, and also do you use it in patients with low risk without symptoms? Yeah, I think that's an important consideration. You would not use it on a low-risk patient that doesn't have symptoms, like you know, if they only have cytopenias, for example. We know what ruxolitinib can do. It has to have a splenomegaly and or symptoms because those are the things that would be likely to benefit from ruxolitinib. Those patients probably represent maybe 30-40% of those patients with a low-risk disease, perhaps a little bit more in the intermediate one than in the low-risk. When I see those patients, if they have that indication, if they are having a lot of symptoms or they have a significant splenomegaly, I definitely use ruxolitinib. And my experience is pretty much what's been shown in this study, that they do benefit. And we should point out that ruxolitinib is not approved in patients with MF at low risk. That is correct. The indication is for the higher risk. So have you had any problems getting it paid for in lower risk patients? No, if they have the right indication in the sense of having the myelofibrosis and the very large spleen. So there were a couple presentations by Ruben Mesa looking at ruxolitinib and polycythemia vera, of course, now approved in that situation. Abstract 709, looking at quality of life and disease-related symptoms. And abstract 3168, looking at the efficacy and safety of continued hydroxyurea therapy versus switching to ruxolitinib. Can you talk about those two papers? 
Yeah, the first one is an important one because, as you mentioned, roxolitinib is now approved for polycythemia vera, and we've seen the efficacy data in terms of reduction in the requirements of phlebotomies and other things. Here, Ruben, who's been a pioneer on looking at the symptoms assessment on patients with maloproliferative neoplasias, he applied a number of different tools that measure quality of life and symptoms, etc., in patients enrolled in this study. There's a scale that's called the MPN symptom assessment form. There's another scale that measures the impact of pruritus in the life of patients. Then there is the quality of life questionnaire that's used mostly in the European EORTC. And then there's another one that measures the patient's own impression of change. So lots of different tools that look at these in different ways. And, well, the bottom line is that ruxolitinib showed a significant improvement in all these scores, whether you look at them globally or whether you look at them as individual symptoms. You know, this fatigue score, for example, decreased by almost 50% with ruxolitinib, whereas with the, in the control arm, it just decreased very mildly on the median. And most of the symptoms actually got worse with the best available treatment, whereas they improved in the majority of patients receiving ruxolitinib. And the impression of the patients, this patient global impression of change, also it was what the patients described as very much improved or much improved was 67% versus only 13% with the best available therapy. So it just shows you that not only these objective measures such as the number of phlebotomies that we knew about, but also the symptoms that the patients feel are much improved when you use ruxolitinib. So, you know, another reason why this drug was approved and should be considered for our patients that have polycythemia vera. The other study that you were referring to, it's an interesting study because this is a randomized study of patients that are receiving hydroxyurea and were taking a stable dose, they could not be considered refractory to hydroxyurea, which was a criteria to go into that response trial, the one that led to the approval. These patients were on hydroxyurea. They were considered to have some benefit, but they were still having some polycythemia vera-related symptoms. So then the patients were randomized to either continue that stable dose of hydroxyurea or to switch to roxolitinib. And then in this study, Ruben reports the impact on the symptoms by the intervention or the continuation of therapy. And what we showed is that there is an improvement with roxolitinib with changing to roxolitinib pretty much with any of the scores that were used. For example, the proportion of patients that had greater than 50% reduction in the scores for itching and fatigue were 40% with roxolitinib versus 26% with the hydroxyurea. And that was for itching and 54% for fatigue versus 32%. So there was a trend for benefit in all of these aspects. So even though these patients were having still some, considered to have some benefit to hydroxyurea, changing to ruxolitinib added value. So I think these two studies globally provide further evidence of the potential benefit of this new drug that we have available for polycythemia vera in this patient population from the point of view of the symptoms that the patients experience. Another study that came out of response was presented to poster 3181, looking at patients who crossed over who were initially randomized in response trial to best available therapy. What about that data set? Yeah, that's very interesting because, you know, after the week 32, when the primary endpoint was being measured, the patients were allowed on that study to cross over to ruxolitinib. 
So here, they essentially, they analyzed the three groups, the patients who were initially treated with ruxolitinib, the patients who were initially on best available therapy and switched to ruxolitinib after week 32, and some patients remained on ruxolitinib. Very few remained on best available therapy, very, very few of these patients. So they compared what happened while the patient was on best available therapy and what happened after they crossed over to ruxolitinib. And as you can imagine, there was a dramatic improvement in all the outcomes after they switched to ruxolitinib. For example, during the first 32 weeks, 25% of patients did not require a phlebotomy. After they switched to ruxolitinib, 79% of patients did not require a phlebotomy. So it tripled after crossing over to ruxolitinib. And many of these measures were actually almost as good as patients who started on ruxolitinib. Not all of them. For example, when you look at the patients that had a 35% reduction in the spleen volume, which has become sort of like the standard measure of success for the spleen, it was only 1.8% during the best available therapy. It improved to 38.5% after the crossover, but it was 60% for the patients who were initially randomized to ruxolitinib. So it suggests that starting early is ideal once you've identified that the patient is refractory to hydroxyurea, which is the indication for ruxolitinib in polycythemia vera. But it further emphasizes the benefit of the drug. So how do you put this all together, particularly the relief data? Because it seems like maybe those patients would not necessarily have gone into the response trial. They weren't really failing on hydroxyurea, and yet they did better when they got switched. What does this mean to your own practice in terms of when, if at all, you're using ruxolitinib in these patients? I think what it means is that any patient that's having, well, certainly the patient who's refractory to hydroxyurea, but any patient that's still having problems while on hydroxyurea, even if you're having some benefit but still having symptoms, you need to consider the drug. And perhaps what this means is that we need to reconsider our definitions of what refractory to hydroxyurea is. Our definition, particularly in the setting of an alternative treatment option that we've shown that is beneficial, perhaps our definition is a little too strict. I guess it is okay to consider refractory to hydroxyurea very strictly when you don't have alternative treatment options, because what are you going to do when you take them off hydroxyurea? But when you have something that benefits, and that study shows that you can get benefit, I think our definitions have to be reassessed, and the persistence of symptoms should perhaps be considered as already indicating a refractoriness, and we definitely should start thinking about switching therapy in that setting. What's your experience been clinically with using ruxolitinib in these patients? When do you see responses? How long does it take? Oh, the responses happen early. You know, of course, the main response that you're looking for is the number of phlebotomies. So, of course, because the phlebotomies may be done every few weeks, that cannot be manifested immediately. You know, you won't see that in a week because you cannot claim that you don't need a phlebotomy just after one week. But the symptoms do improve very quickly. So you may see that right away. And then over the next few weeks, you'll realize that you're not requiring as many phlebotomies as you were requiring before. So I think the benefit is rapid, but it also, you know, some of the things you see immediately, some of the things by definition, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Any issues in terms of side effects or complications, particularly in terms of blood counts? Well, I mean, not much. We do know the drop in the hemoglobin and the platelets. Of course, the drop in hemoglobin in a polycythemia vera patient is beneficial. 
The drop in platelets is not as marked, so yeah, I mean, you need to monitor, of course, but it hasn't been a big problem in these patients. Now, keep in mind the dose of ruxolitinib that was used in this indication is a little bit lower. It's 10 milligrams twice a day, so whether that has anything to do is, you know, that may be part of the reason, but it is certainly very well tolerated. So let's finish out talking about abstract 1847. And your colleague, Dr. Verstevec, looking at the use of ruxolitinib and essential thrombocythemia. Yeah, so we've talked about ruxolitinib for myelofibrosis, and it's approved. And we talked about ruxolitinib for polycythemia vera, and now it's approved. And we've investigated it also in patients with essential thrombocytemia. As we know, it's also a JAK2 driven disease, there's mutations there, et cetera. So this is just a long term follow up data of a study that was conducted, a phase two study that was conducted some time ago. When I talk about long-term follow-up, it is long-term follow-up. The median exposure to ruxolitinib was about four years. So essentially what this study showed is that there was a very significant improvement in the platelet count, particularly for the patients that had a higher platelet count. The patients who had a platelet count of greater than 400 by approximately 48 months, 13% of patients had decreased to less than 400. Of the patients who started with more than 600, the reduction to less than 600 was up to 57%. So it definitely has value, and because of this long-term follow-up, you realize that this is a very durable improvement. Some patients, in addition, had an elevated white cell count. They also improved. And, you know, big spleens are not that common in essential thrombocytemia, but the patients who had a big spleen also improved. So generally speaking, also a very favorable result. Symptoms, they were also assessed and they also improved. So the drug, again, well tolerated, very effective in this setting. It is not approved for this indication, but it's certainly another area where we are seeing benefit with this drug. Do you see the drug being approved in these patients in the future? I think that there should be an attempt to try to get it approved because we do have patients that, you know, you can give them hydroxyurea, you can give them an agrolyte, but most of these patients in this study already had gone through those drugs anyway. I think part of the problem with the approval has been that to define what is resistance to these drugs, et cetera. But I think as we learn more and feel more comfortable with the drug, I think the results such as this study, in my opinion, are enough in the context of a very safe drug to say, you know, we should make it available for these patients that have this other malaparifative entity.